In its simplest form, selling is a transaction involving an exchange of products or services for money. However, many situations transcend this simple notion and are a detailed exchange of information between buyer and seller to arrive at a purchase decision. Early in the life cycle of many companies, the sales function is often left to the founder, whose product knowledge and passion can form a potent selling approach. However, as a company grows, the founder will need to hand this off to a dedicated team and develop a selling process. But what exactly is a selling process and who trains and manages the sales reps? And if revenue growth is so important, why is sales training so often overlooked? To help us sort this out, we're joined by Rich Isaac, founder and president of Sandler Training of Hophog, New York. He and his team have built one of the most prominent and successful sales consulting practices in the metropolitan area. Rich holds a degree in mechanical engineering from Rutgers and an MBA from Hofstra University. He started his career as an engineer with the Grumman Corporation and eventually moved into marketing and sales positions at several large Long Island high-tech companies before starting his business in 1996. He has decades of experience working with corporations at all stages of development, from startups to multinational corporations, across a variety of industries. Rich, welcome to our podcast series. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for agreeing to join us today. And before we get started talking about what you currently do and about uh, selling and sales and how that relates to what entrepreneurs might confront in their own experiences, tell us about your experience and your journey. Let's start because I found fascinating that going back to college, you actually started with a degree in mechanical engineering. You went back for an MBA at Hofstra, and then you worked for some technology companies. Sure, absolutely. When I was young, I was pretty good at math and science, pretty good student. And my dad had said to me, you should be an engineer. And I, hmm. I probably said, what's an engineer? <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he went on to explain it. He was actually a salesperson who sold shoes. Uh, and then he said, actually, you should be a sales engineer. And I really had no idea what that was, which is sort of a technically oriented salesperson. In any case, I followed his advice. He said, you'd be able to get a good job in my, and I was interested in airplanes and aerospace. I always had my binoculars looking up at the sky, and I uh, ultimately got my first job at Grumman Aerospace Corporation, which was actually the largest employer at the time on Long Island. Uh-huh. And I was an aerodynamicist helping design aircraft wings, which was sort of pretty cool. Worked on some very interesting projects. Wow. But to be frank, I found pretty soon that I was mostly behind the computer and wasn't really working with people. And so after a few years, I decided to look elsewhere in that regard and take my technical skills and try to move them into a more people-oriented role, which then drove me into some technology companies, right? Went into something called product marketing, which is um, helping design, develop products, but more from a, what does the market need? It was a very interesting span of my career for a few years, for about 15 years. Specifically, 10 years at Symbol Technologies was really an amazing, interesting ride of a fast-growing company. Yeah, it really was. And Symbol is now part of, I think, Zebra Corporation, right? Correct. It bounced to Motorola for a little while and into Zebra. A lot of the same people are still there, still doing their thing, and it's still a very successful company. And you had the position there, I think, a director of marketing, and you were involved in developing technology, looking, as you said, looking for what the market was after. And was it long after that? Or maybe you could tell me about that transition or that spark that got you to go into Sandler and create your own business. Yeah, it was interesting. I, two things really happened. One, 
you know, in technology, you need to turn over the product line every 18 months. Otherwise, it's obsolete. Mm. And while I didn't mind that, it wasn't particularly exciting or motivating for me. I was a people person and I recognized that. At the same time, I had done a lot of training on behalf of the company training people on the product themselves, doing a lot of talks at trade shows and conferences. And I realized that was really getting me excited. I had had a lot of exposure to sales, but I had never actually been a, as they say, a bag carrying salesperson, you know, someone who was on commission. And I wanted to do something that had, to be frank, felt to me like it had more of an impact on people in the world. And I started exploring from there. And what brought you then to to Sandler and make that decision then to open your own business? Yeah, interesting. There was very little entrepreneurship in my family. I had an uncle, Uncle Ike, who was a really successful entrepreneur, had uh, owned several Ethan Allen furniture franchises in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. And he would talk to me about it once in a while, but I just didn't really have that. I always assumed I would be a corporate guy. (laughs) And then as one book refers to it. I had an entrepreneurial seizure, you know, <laughs> something <laughs> grabbed me and said, you need, you need to go, you need to go to zero income for a little while on purpose to somehow meet your life's calling. And I literally saw an ad in the wall street journal uh, about this training company, uh-huh. um, sales training. And I looked into it, went to a conference, met some people and said, what are these crazy people doing down here in Baltimore? <laughs> and that was literally 25 years ago this week Wow! that I started my franchise, yeah. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, what's interesting is that sales is an important part of any company, right? It's all about revenue. It's all about growth. It's all about finding the next customer and then keeping the customers you do have satisfied. And oftentimes, it tends to be somewhat overlooked. We don't do intense sales training at a university level, it's often as part of a marketing program or part of something else where we teach people how to sell. So what does Sandler do? So what do you do every day now? Sure. Well, certainly I do some things differently than I did when I first started Uh in that back then I was really scrounging for clients and customers, whether they were individuals who want to improve themselves or companies that had sales teams. So it's a little bit different now. Mm. Uh, But broadly speaking, you're exactly right, John. While we're starting to see a little bit of some sales curriculum in at the college level. In fact, Sandler has some relationships in several universities at this point. Mm-hmm. It's very slow in developing. I think uh, generally sales is what we refer to as an accidental business. Most people, as we kiddingly say, didn't have their parents tucking them in at night saying, I hope you grow up to be a salesperson. It's just not, <laughs> it's just not, sort of not in our culture. And I think we'll talk a little bit later about the fact that sales has this Sometimes less than stellar reputation because sure. of some salespeople who were, you know, rather pushy or whatever over time. So that's one reason I think it's somewhat avoided. But Sandler works literally, as I mentioned before, anywhere from an individual who wants to improve in their sales role, whether they're a salesperson or, as you mentioned, an entrepreneur or business owner who is currently responsible for selling their products and services. And that goes across things like. Even folks you wouldn't think of as salespeople, accountants and attorneys, still have to find customers. That's sure. sales. And marketing and sales are similar, but, but overlap, but are different, all the way up to large Fortune 500 companies that have thousands of salespeople as part of a worldwide network. We have the, um, the ability to work with large organizations as well. 
And it's really remarkable to me after all these years, it's still very obvious that even good salespeople, I'm working with a team right now at a pretty well-known company, the best salespeople at that company, when they hear new ideas, uh, they realize they can be even better. And others are at the other end of the spectrum really struggling with it and trying to figure out how to be better without without being, typically, they don't want to be that classic pushy salespeople that they've seen, heard of, or experienced. So it's a fine line. And Sandler's known for um, being able to provide a really high integrity sales process into, into individuals and companies. What's interesting, a lot of entrepreneurs, oftentimes their first experience in selling something is selling themselves to investors or selling themselves to the bank and raising money. And uh, in speaking to, uh, to uh, other people who have mentored uh, entrepreneurs, they often talk about they're so focused on the product that they fail to talk about what is it they're trying to solve. And I think that's, that's probably the beginning of any sales process, right? Where you're looking to, what's the problem? What's the issue? How can I help you with that? Yeah. So many folks, and, and they're trained to do it and or it's natural for them, especially if they've developed the product, you know, it's sort of their baby, whether it's a product or service. Right. This is a tendency to talk about what it is and what it does, what's referred to as features and benefits. Mm-hmm. And while that's important information to have, especially from a marketing perspective, so you can explain to people what you have and what it's supposed to do. When we're interacting with someone, whether that's on the investor side, the banking side, or ultimately more important the prospective client side, feature benefit conversation just sounds like we're trying to convince them, like we're trying to pitch them. Our product is great. You'd be crazy not to have it. (laughs) As opposed to let's figure out whether there's any kind of an issue, a gap, an opportunity, a problem that having our product or service would fill. And that gap has to be something that the person either recognizes already or we somehow help them discover that they have it. And then sales becomes much easier because we're not trying to convince anybody. We're just filling a need. Yeah. What's interesting is, and again, this has come across in a lot of conversations when I speak to people who have advice for entrepreneurs, and that is to obsess on what the problem is that you're solving and get people so they can relate to the conversation. Do they have the same problem that you're describing? Or make make sure you understand their perspective, where they're coming from, so then you can be well-informed in terms of how you then present your product. We, and I, yeah. and full disclosure, you know, we used you at the last company I was involved with and your organization did a great job training our salespeople and taking it from what we would do is the technical side. And then you right. took it and put that into a process that they could adopt. And sort of focusing on here is to really have an understanding of what are the issues and then how can you solve them as a starting point, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And what's so interesting there is is that to take that conversation from what the product is to what's the potential issue that you're filling is just not intuitively obvious for people. How do I do that? How do I transfer that that into that other conversation? Mm. And the answer predominantly comes in the form of being better at asking questions Mm. to uncover these things. For example, using my, my world of sales training, I could say to someone, we provide sales training to salespeople and managers to be, have them become more effective. Well, that, that's nice. <laughs> but that doesn't really, it's not from their perspective. It would sound something more like, uh, I'll just give you one example. One of the things we often see is that companies will take one of their top salespeople and turn them into a manager. 
And what they sometimes find is that those skills, while they overlap to some degree, are quite different. Right. And that salesperson who was so great in that role is struggling to hold people accountable and to ultimately hit the numbers that they're looking for. And they're just scratching their head trying to figure out why the person didn't transfer in, into that role as comfortably as they might have. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, John, is that something you can relate to? Yeah, any good salesperson has to be optimistic. And so when you sit with someone and they, they take that wonderful optimism and they're not really informed of what it really means to uh, mentor, to really understand what it means to help and influence someone to understand what their objectives are, and then a process in which how do you achieve those objectives. And a lot of salespeople do things intuitively, but then they have a hard time transferring that into and taking that that tacit knowledge and then transferring it to someone else. Yeah, exactly. We actually have a name for that. We call them non-transferable skills. (laughs) (laughs) They, They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't know why they're good. As you said, they, they, very often they've learned things. In fact, one of the things that I find is mentioning, I'm working with a new sales team, numerous, you know, a handful of them are very good already, meaning they're doing well, hitting their numbers are very highly regarded. And while sometimes I'll run into people like that who are not open to new ideas, this group happens to be. Mm. And one of the things that we find is that we've just named something they already do. <laughs> we've codified it. We've put it into a process so that we can then teach it to other people. Because if you ask this woman, Rachel, for example, how do you do that? She'd be like, I, I don't really know. I just do it. <laughs> but we can tell her, oh, no, what she's doing is she has a questioning strategy. She starts with an initial questioning strategy to get some indication of issues on the table. And then she has two other strategies that she uses to dig deeper to help the person uh, uncover even more importantly, you know, the impact that it's having and so on. So she actually does something that we We've named, but she just didn't know she was doing it that way. Yeah, and, and that's fascinating because my career was primarily in, in a business-to-business relationship. Right. And that you have to develop the ability to develop trust with people. That People have to feel comfortable with you because nobody likes to be questioned at the end of the day. So you might have to ask someone, well, what is it that you're not getting from your current supplier that you would like to see? As opposed to, well, how many times has that, have you gotten a quality issue? Or how many? Well, no, you got to make people comfortable before they share that. They want to know that there's a level of trust here. And that as they then express yeah. what their difficulties are, you can then translate that back into even further questioning. So you don't go in digging for gold right away. You got to sort of scratch the surface a bit, right? Kind of figure out what's there before you go digging deeper. Yeah, what's so interesting about that is, is that when people think of you know, building trust or rapport with people, it has a tendency to be sometimes a little artificial, you know, mm-hmm. hey, how about those Mets or something like that? And not that there's anything wrong with that, but, uh, but generally speaking, we view things as much more subtle than that. As you mentioned, John, it's, it's almost a question of recognizing that people have a tendency to distrust at some level the salesperson, right. you know, believing that the salesperson quote, wants to sell them something. And of course, there's some ring of truth to that. And so our perspective is how do we create an environment that mitigates that negative feeling so that it can move towards positive. So for example, we'll say something, and here's the important thing, and I'll make a point about it, is that we really mean it when we say it. We say things to people like, you know, let's have a conversation about whether we can help you or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to ask questions to figure out what's working and what's not. You know, sometimes there's a fit, sometimes there isn't. I'm okay with that. I hope you are as well. Mm. Now, they rarely have heard 
a professional salesperson say that, the biggest salesperson would be like, I can't give them an out, <laughs> but they always have an out. The out sounds like, yeah, call me in six months, you know? Right. So the key there is, is using certain approaches uh, that are psychologically sound, not to trick someone into feeling something, but here's the essence of that statement. You know, by the way, maybe there's a fit here, John, maybe there isn't. If a salesperson can learn to own and actually believe that, not use it as some kind of a, a manipulative comment to try to get the person comfortable, but understand that sometimes there is a fit and sometimes there isn't. Certain times it can work, sometimes it doesn't, and own it and believe it, then we believe a lot of it comes from what the prospect simply feels as the salesperson is approaching them. Are they feeling pressured or are they feeling disarmed so that they can have an honest conversation, an open conversation, and really reveal what's happening in their organization? Um, so you're 100% right. We have to create that early in the process. And it doesn't take weeks or, or years. It can just take one or two conversations. Yeah, and you get a sense of things right away. It's hard to explain this to people who have maybe haven't gone through a selling process and, and been charged with going out and prospecting. And I always tell people, look, your currency is time. Where do you want to invest your time? You want to go out and qualify. So you got to go out and then first fill the pipeline of leads and then figure out who's the right fit and who do I want to invest my time in? Because if I invest my time in the wrong area and I don't create a sale, I don't get paid. Training is so important because a lot of people don't understand what that process is like, don't know when to say, okay, maybe it's not a right fit, I have to stop. And then oftentimes that difficult conversation between sales management and leadership within an organization to say, we're not going to break this account. And a lot of times we have people that will put too much time into something that's really not qualified. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I think one of the challenges there is how well defined is their word qualified. What does that mean? You know, if we're excited about it because it's a big opportunity, people might think that's more qualified. But we have a very specific definition of qualified and what we mean, and I'll share with you what the definition is in a moment, but mm -hmm. meaning, as you said, qualified to put the time and effort into, for example, putting a proposal together, which depending on the product or service can sometimes be very significant. You know, and then people have a tendency to develop these and then send them to people and then chase people and it, the time and energy that can be wasted. Qualified means have we really uncovered that there's a real need that the person admits to having and is admitting to you and to themselves that they need to take care of? Whether that's a, an upside, up, you know, positive thing or a downside, negative thing they're looking to fix. Right. Second, are they willing and able? to invest the time, energy, and money to take care of that problem? And are we dealing with people who are in a position to make a decision, right? Very often we'll deal with people who will then have to go three layers upstairs to get a decision, which that's understandable why things take so long to decide. Mm -hmm. So our perspective is that if you can spend more time qualifying through this thing we refer to as pain, budget, and decision, pain is a negative word, it just means that gap, Mm -hmm. their willingness to invest and their willingness to make a decision at some point, you can become much more efficient because your, your closing ratio goes up because you don't waste time doing proposals that are never going to happen. How do I train people? How do I get people the message that we make something great, it's, it's focused in these areas, and here's how you go out and sell it? That's great, but then understanding that there's a process, and we, we talked about it straight up, right, right at the beginning, that oftentimes those people have a hard time talking about process. What's interesting is, is that, 
especially in the technology side, we find that people have developed a product or service. They're like, oh, let me go find a hot shot salesperson who's going to sell it. Um, and then their feeling is, it's, well, that person knows more about this than I do. Our experience tells us that while they don't have to be the salesperson forever, that for that entrepreneur to understand the sales process, to develop a process within their company that becomes the ABC company way of doing things is much more effective for long-term growth because you hire some person who you hope is going to be successful and whether they are or they're not, when they leave, what happens to your sales machine? We believe every company needs a selling system and process. And then that puts them in the position to bring people in, hold them under that and be more successful. Yeah. That's that transition from starting up to scaling up, right? Where you, you get them. Yeah. Uh, now you're on that growth track. Hopefully, right? You got to get the, the company going. Right. And, and, and exactly. I, I would think that, you, that this probably resonates with you because you, you deal with so many business owners, even small business owners that have to make that transition. Yeah. And it's, um, it's an exciting time to be at a place where they realize they can make the investment in that. Very often we'll find that someone will bring in a salesperson and the owner and that salesperson will work together. We're working with an organization now who we worked with a few years ago, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, where the two owners, husband and wife team, were the predominant salespeople. Now they've grown. <clears throat> they've brought in a sales team. So they already had a way of going about it. They weren't necessarily the world's best at it because they were technology people. Mm-hmm. But they now we're now training their sales manager. The owner has gone back to our program for some reinforcement to remember it. And we're training their three salespeople. You know, you and I are speaking today. It's October of 2021. The pandemic, we all pray, is is winding down, hopefully. And somewhat within the near future, maybe we'll get some level of a return to normalcy, whatever that will look like. But during the pandemic, were there lessons learned or were there changes that you saw that affected that process of selling? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, quite dramatically, uh, as it affected our business, the training business, which was, you know, 95% face-to-face and probably 90% face-to-face, 10% remote. So, yeah. So, for one thing, let me talk about some of the advantages that have come out of this. There's obviously some downsides. We certainly had some clients who struggled dramatically, and that affected us. But fortunately, we've bounced back quite well. Relative to some advantages, let's talk about the old way of doing business. Uh, it was typically this. So I'd find a prospect through whatever means, marketing or networking or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And I'd probably start with about a 15-minute phone call to set up a face-to-face appointment. And very often, depending on who we were, for me, for example, I'm on Long Island and a lot of our business is out here, but we certainly did quite a bit of business in Manhattan, which is about an hour train ride. So typically, 15-minute phone call, set up an appointment in the city, which would pretty much take all day right? Because I have an hour in, I have an hour out. It's going to be a lunch. At least half the day is gone. Now with Zoom and, and so many people are used to it, I'm using Zoom as an example. There's obviously multiple platforms, but I'll have a very brief conversation if at all. And maybe in an email, we'll simply say, let's set up a 45 minute meeting. And that meeting is going to be face to face. So we're finding that the actual number of face to face meetings versus just phone calls. And we believe face to face meaning Obviously, that historically sure. meant standing in front of someone, but now it means potentially via Zoom. Right. And I think we have to come up with some different terminology for it. But it is face-to-face. Do you miss some aspects? 
I always joke, yeah, one thing you don't know is how tall people are (laughs) (laughs) because they're sitting or whatever. But generally speaking, I am having way more face-to-face meetings than phone calls, which means I get to see their expressions. I get to see their reactions, not only hear them, which of course you can do over the phone. So in one regard, selling has become dramatically more efficient. Studies have shown recently that a lot of people would prefer to maintain the remote selling environment rather than having people come see them because it takes their time too or going out for a two-hour lunch versus a straight-up 45-minute meeting. Now, I also find that now when you get together with people, and it's like a miracle. I'm sitting with someone and talking with them. So I do find there's a greater enthusiasm for when we do have those face-to-face meetings, those live face-to-face meetings. So there's some aspects of it that certainly have become more positive. So only because we have a lot of students and, and budding entrepreneurs listen to this, uh, to our podcast series. So what specific yeah. advice do you have for future entrepreneurs as it relates to selling and the selling process? Yeah. Uh, two things immediately come to mind. I'm sure they've heard it before. So, you know, finding something that gets you more excited that you feel you can love, I think is a, is a key aspect of entrepreneurship of finding something that you really can get excited about. And the second thing is in having now, you know, adult children, it's interesting to watch them in terms of their level of, of willingness to accept risk. Starting a business requires some risk. It doesn't mean you need to put yourself at dramatic risk in terms of being able to eat and so on, but there's risk associated with it and, and asking yourself if you can handle that and not necessarily letting it stop you and working hard to see if you can have some safety nets? Are there people around you who can potentially help support you or there in the, at the beginning? As my wife said, when we first started this, you know, we had three little kids. Uh-huh. She said, if this doesn't work out, could you get another job? And I said, yes. That didn't mean that I was keeping my foot on first base, you know, not going to second because I knew I could get another job. But underlying it, I knew right. if after a couple of years it wasn't working out, I could go probably back in my old company because I maintained a good relationship. So Weighing your risk is important and recognize that it's just going to take some, but it doesn't have to be earth shattering. I don't consider myself a dramatic risk taker, um, but I had to take some for sure. Yeah, excellent. Very, very good points. Um, now, I'm going to ask you, I'll put you on the spot here, but what one word describes who you are? I would say nurturing. Ah, okay. And it's the thing that I mean, Sandler, I've been around for a long time. We have a worldwide network. I'm honored to know that I'm known for that, (laughs) Um, that to be able to have a conversation with someone, which I think is an important aspect of sales. In fact, Sandler himself, it was a gentleman named David Sandler who founded it, used to say the three most important words in human dynamics are nurture, nurture, (laughs) nurture. Can you make people feel okay? And I learned, I think I had some of that naturally, but I learned a lot of to be frank, techniques for how to nurture and make someone comfortable. And that's something that I really own. Uh, that, that, yeah. that, that's a wonderful trait. That's a great word, nurturing. Thank one, you. Of the, one of the aspects of anything that we do in life is to make a difference and to influence others requires that you yeah. connect with people. And a big part of nurturing is, that, is creating a connection. And not everyone has that ability, and certainly you do, Rich. I appreciate it. I think it actually is something I agree based on style, it might be more challenging for others, but that's one of the aspects of what we teach is, okay, how do I do that? And, and there's sort of psychologically sound ways in which you can connect better with people. 
you just have to be aware of, of what those are. Just a quick example. You know, you normally would run into someone who's very different style than you. Say mm-hmm. you're soft spoken and they're boisterous. And your first reaction is, I don't like that person or that person makes me uncomfortable or some negative reaction. But when we recognize that, you know, that's just their style. It's not, don't judge them. We can learn to interact with them much more effectively, just using that as an example. Oh, very well put. Rich, thank you so much for taking the time today. Really, I think our, our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Really great to, great to talk to you. Although we've often heard the notion of a born salesman, the reality is that most successful salespeople have refined a selling process worked out through experience, trial, and error. As Rich pointed out, when selling, you need to recognize that people tend to distrust salespeople because they believe the sales rep is more concerned with getting the order than how it will benefit the buyer. So the salesperson must create an environment to overcome suspicion and doubt and establish trust. Rich laid out a process that includes connecting with the prospective buyer by using a conversational style. Be transparent about how you'll determine if your product or service is the right fit. Make them feel comfortable so they'll discuss what's needed and the issues they're having. Be sure to take the conversation from talking about the product you're selling to focus on the gap you're filling. You'll do this by asking questions. Help the person expose the problem and uncover what's important. Then analyze what's disclosed and determine the next step forward. To be as efficient as possible, Rich talked about having a qualifying process to help focus on the leads with the greatest potential. He defined qualified as, we've uncovered a real issue that the person admits to, determine if they have the time and capital to invest, and we're dealing with the people who are in a position to make a decision. Qualifying leads will allow for a more effective use of time and increase your sales potential. In our discussion of how the pandemic impacted selling, Rich talked about the escalation of video conferencing. He noted the efficiency and effectiveness of virtual meetings using Zoom or any number of platforms and how this trend is likely to endure in a post-pandemic era. And finally, Rich emphasized the word nurture. Nurturing and supporting people to reach their full potential is an essential trait of outstanding leadership. These are just a few of the valuable insights Rich shared, and we thank him for participating in our podcast series. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.